Hello and welcome to 1% Wiser with me, Jamie Green. My guest today is Professor John Vaveki. John is a cognitive scientist at the University of Toronto and the creator of the massively popular YouTube series Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which is a huge 50-part lecture series diving deep into the roots of the meaning crisis and the possible ways to emerge from it. In our conversation today, we dive in. What exactly is the meaning crisis? What are some of the root causes of this crisis? And what are some of the ways we can emerge from this crisis individually and as a society? John is incredibly knowledgeable across a wide range of topics, and he's a true polymath. So it was really fantastic and a privilege to be able to speak with him today. So with that, I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Vivekan. I'm here today with John Vaveki. John, it's fantastic to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Jamie. It's a pleasure to be here. So, John, you, you have tens, if not hundreds of hours of lectures on YouTube covering <laughs> the topic of meaning. And we have today just, just about one hour to cover this topic. So let's, let's jump right in. What I want to do is take this short time to try to diagnose the problem. What exactly do we mean by the meaning crisis? How might people identify a meaning crisis in their own life if it isn't already obvious? And secondly, to look at kind of what, what would it would look like individually in society to emerge from this crisis. So first of all, I'd love to start there with just trying to, to define a little bit what, what we mean when we talk about a meaning crisis. Right. So there's sort of two levels to look at that, sort of, and when you're looking at it diagnostically, one is to look for a pattern of symptoms, a symptomology. And then the second level, the deeper level, is to look for an underlying causal explanation of those. And then from that, you can make a prognosis. How is it likely to unfold? And you might then make a prescription of what should be done about it. And here I'm doing something from the Hellenistic period that, that the philosopher is the physician of the soul or the psyche. So I'm picking up on that medical metaphor. So there's a range of, of symptoms that Christopher Mastripetro and I have published about that we think are best explained by the proposal of the meaning crisis. The first is that in many places, especially places perplexingly of significant affluence, the suicide rate is going up. And the suicide rate is going up while alarmingly the age at, we, at which people commit suicide is going down. So child suicide is now a thing. And Tatiana Schnell has provided some very good evidence that these suicides can be driven just by a sense of meaninglessness. They do not have to be because the person has been driven into sort of deep or clinical depression. It's just life is meaningless and there you go. And that of course does overlap with another pattern we can see, which is the overall increase in depression and anxiety conditions. These are actually often comorbid with each other. They're known as the common cold of mental health because of their pervasiveness and the fact that almost everybody at some point either falls into it or at least knows somebody close to them that has fallen significantly into it. And, and, and this is not just something driven biochemically. I'm not denying that there's a biochemical component, but many people now acknowledge that there are huge important issues around meaning um, and meaning making and meaning participation that are gone awry in these, these people. Right next to that is the loneliness ep epidemic that people increasingly are experiencing a kind of devastating loneliness. And this was made even more apparent by COVID in which people were thrown back onto 
their subjectivity only to find that it was not a rich resource, um, which was paradoxical, I think, in a shocking way for many people, because we have been tutored by our culture to be very sort of, uh, you know, how are things for me and how are things oriented to me? It's been said, of course, that we suffer from an epidemic of narcissism. And then people soon discovered that self-centeredness is not the same thing as having a very centered self. Those are two radically different things. And loneliness tends to bring that out in, in a very powerful way. I mentioned in, in a talk I gave a while ago that there was a survey uh, done in the UK in, in 2017. The UK has set up a ministry of loneliness, which sounds like something frighteningly out of Orwell. <laughs> and in that 2017 survey, I think it was something like around 85% of people said their lives were meaningless. It's a little bit lower for older people, around 60%. That seems to be mediated by the degree to which older people are still participating in religious communities. And then the problem for that is we know that meaning life is terrifically protective against suicide, against depression, against despair, against self-destructive forms of behavior, against loneliness, against a, a, a loss in uh, subjective well-being, a reduction in the standard of living. Meaningfulness protects against all of that. So a large proportion of your population being meaningless experiencing their lives as meaningless is very vulnerable. Uh, overlapping with all of these and interacting with them is the opioid or addiction crisis. And I agree with the work of my friend and colleague, Mark Lewis, that addiction, again, it has a biochemical uh, component, but it's largely a case of what he calls reciprocal narrowing, which is basically a, a decrease in one's sense of connectedness, agency, basically meaningfulness. And then you get to sort of a very pervasive uh, phenomena, which is the virtual exodus, that people are now explicitly stating that they prefer their online existence over their real, is that even the right word for them anymore, existence. And it's telling to note what it is they find in the virtual world that is so lacking in the real world that explains this preference. And, and, and the epitome of this is uh, video games. In the video games, people get into the flow state. The flow state is predictive of how good you've experienced your life, how well you experience your life. But the problem is that often the flow state does not transfer out of the video games into the real world, so it locks people in. And then they find the three orders of meaning. They find uh, a narrative order. They belong to a story that that is relevant to the whole world, and they play a significant part in it. So they get a sense of purpose. There's, they, there's a nomological order. There's rules that make that whole world intelligible. It's not absurd or fragmented for them. So they get a sense of coherence. And there's a, there's a normative order. They can level up. They can get better. They can self-transcend. And that tells you what they find lacking. Those three orders of meaning are lacking in their life. And then a very pervasive phenomenon is the rise of the category of the nuns. N-O-N-E-S. These are people who say they have no official religion. Most of them are not sort of textbook atheists. Most of them will describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious, which means they are searching for me and they're having a difficulty finding it. And they're often cobbling it together autodidactically or in small groups. And that's very problematic for all kinds of epistemological reasons. Then you start to see some more positive responses. You have, I should say that the nuns uh, often display a lot of religious behavior before I leave them as a category. They, they, they'll dress up in the costumes of Marvel characters and go to conferences. And any anthropologist would say that's, that's religious behavior. You're, 
taking on the appearance of a super being in the hopes that by identifying with them, you somehow accrue some of their features or their meaning. And then I said, you start to move to some more positive responses like the mindfulness revolution in which people are really trying to pursue fundamental transformation and self-transcendence. I have criticisms of the way the West is misshaping this. It's been called mindfulness, but nevertheless, you can see that people are really trying to fundamentally awaken from this kind of malaise of meaning. You have the rise of ancient philosophies as a way of life, philosophies that were about cultivating meaning and being excellent in the cultivation of meaning, which is what wisdom properly is. And you, things like Stoicism or the attempts to adopt Buddhism or even the attempts to return to indigenous cultures. There's problems with all of this. There's criticisms of all of this. But nevertheless, you can see that people are really trying to do this. Then you have two more very, I think, mostly clearly positive responses. You have the huge uptake in the academic world, at least the circles I move within, of an interest in wisdom, meaning in life, transformative experience, psychedelic experience, mystical experience. The scientific community is treating these with utmost seriousness. And then in the so-called lived world or real world, I'm in contact with and conversation with many emerging communities in which people are collectively, culti culti collectively and individually in a coordinated manner, cultivating ecologies of practices to try and um, enhance meaning in life. The best explanation for all of this and, and just the general sense that many people have that something's not going right and there's too much bullshit all around is that meaning is very important and meaning is at risk in a serious way right now. That's the, that's the symptomology of the meaning. Well, thank you. That was uh, very wide ranging. And, and if I understand correctly, your, your thesis is tying, saying that all of these different challenges, both the positive and the negative, are at least somewhat in part related to this loss of meaning in life. So I want to pick yes. on on one area just as a jumping off point and we can we can go from there. And that was you were talking about narrative order in life and I want to throw out a, an idea for you to respond to. I was I was wondering whether this idea of a, of having to construct our own narrative in life is is related to the decline of these shared narratives that we used to have whether that is religion, nation state, liberalism. And so now with the rise of, of individualism, we have to construct our own narrative order in lives. And this, this is putting this burden on the individual to construct meaning and to construct narrative order. Yeah, I, just... yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think our, our, our society is pushing us towards two or three things that are trying to bear the burden of... I, 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 I try to make it sort of... Uh, somewhat humorous with emphasis, but also serious. We're trying to make, you know, our, our, our relationship to ourself or our romantic relationships bear the burden of God and culture and history. And that uh, those things are not capable of doing that. I think COVID showed many people that your relationship, as I mentioned, your relationship to yourself just isn't, isn't really typically isn't deep enough to do that. And your romantic relationships, when you really are forced just onto them, I mean, one of the most widely reported things about COVID is a lot of romantic relationships uh, fell apart because people realized they really can't bear uh, that burden in an important way. And I, I do think also the idea of that we can sort of self-author, it, 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 it's fundamentally problematic for us because we got 
we had two opposing views about this, both given to a, well, one given in the Enlightenment and one in response. So empiricism says, no, 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 you don't make meaning. It's caused to happen in you. You are just a blank blank slate and the world just, the finger of the world just writes upon you and that's how it comes to be. And so you're at the thought that you would sort of make meaning is like, what? That doesn't make much sense. You're, you're basically, you know, uh, you know, in, in thrall to the causal structure of the world. And of course, there's the romantic reaction to that that says, no, 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 the world is a blank canvas and you express yourself upon it and you press your express, you press your will upon it, you make meaning and you make order. And the, and the most important canvas, and this is Nietzsche, your lifestyle, like your, right? And it's like, well, the problem with, it, and this is a problem that romanticism has bumped into in many ways, is you know, a story is only meaningful if it's shareable. Somebody has to listen to it. And the problem is if you're the only one listening to your story, you don't know if it's a good story or not. And, and I mean, I like to use the example, like I've been writing poetry for a very long time. And for a long time, you just write crap for decades and you have to read a lot of other people's and you have to try it out on a lot of other people. And it takes a lot of work to get people to share your poetry and it's, it's at that point when you realize, that's when your poetry becomes meaningful and, and good and, and, and so forth. And so we're caught between these two grammars that says, no, you're just sort of passively here. And the other is you're impossibly self-creative. And then, like I said, you're trying to bear both poles. <laughs> you're trying to be the world to yourself and you're trying to be God to that world. And we like to pretend that this really works. But the evidence is both apparent and also, you know, very precise within experimental settings that we deeply, deeply are interwoven with other people in the world. That's one of the central claims of 4E cognitive science. Right. I feel like we, we are dancing slightly around one topic, which is, which is religion and sure. the narrative role of, of religion that, that used to play, I, I suppose, the, the key narrative role in many people's lives, but has obviously for, for a number of reasons reduced. And I wonder if in some sense we collectively are, have been searching for something to replace that ever since the kind of enlightenment and, and, and this in this view. Yeah. I think, I think that's well said. And, and Nietzsche, he, he sort of gets this when he sends the madman into the marketplace. He's not talking to believers. He's talking to atheists when he pronounces the death of God. And he tells them, you don't realize what you've done. How will we become worthy of it? We're, we are forever falling. Because he saw that the what we might call the functionality of religion is sort of way more important I think, in a fundamental way, than the particular propositional metaphysical claims people make. And, and, and we, we sort of largely rejected, we largely rejected religion for two primary reasons. One is a historical moral critique of the institutions and how poorly they have performed according to certain standards, sometimes their own standards. The problem that we've now realized about that is the places where we thought we could do better like the the state or political ideologies turned out to be far worse and capable uh, i mean in the 20th century was just well evidence of this uh, capable of greater moral failings so we're sort of at a loss about like well yeah there was problems there but maybe we're we threw out the baby with the bathwater. there's people sort of thinking that and then the other critique is not 
so much around the, 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 notice the moral critique isn't whether or not it's true, it's whether or not it's good. And then this other critique is, is, is about whether or not it's relevant. Many of the, the nuns reject religion because they, not because they sort of find it deeply false. They either reject it because of the moral critique, which I've already responded to, or they reject it because they think it's, it's, it's irrelevant. The, the worldview of religion does not seem to sit well with the scientific technological world in which they are enmeshed. Now, people, of course, make all kinds of ridiculous claims around it. Well, I reject the scientific worldview, and they'll, and they'll tell you this over Zoom, which is like, you don't. You, <laughs> like, you may say certain things, right? That, right? But if you're enmeshed in the causal forces, and if you're addicted to your phone, right, then you, 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 you're not free from it. And so I think what we're coming to realize is, well, sorry, that's too, that's too grandiose, too pretentious. There's a bunch of people, both academics and lay people, not not necessarily not, not educate. I'm not saying they're not educated, but they're not they're not academic researchers on this right. topic, right? That are coming to the conclusion that there was some deep and important functionality in that we didn't really understand because we took it to be completely captured by the propositions and the creeds of a religion. And when we thought we got rid of those, we failed to realize that we were disconnecting ourselves from, from very, very powerful machinery, cognitive cultural machinery. And so, yeah, part of it is a hunger. Uh, but what the, the hunger is a difficult one, Jamie, because people don't want to go back to their traditional religions, by and mm -hmm. large. But they are, there's this weird thing. They, they have, I, I would say, we have a profoundly ambivalent relationship to po the political arena as the replacement for religion. We politicize everything, but we're also very disenfranchised and disillusioned about the political system. Many, and we, we see, it, it, on both right and left, we see behavior that is, again, anthropologically best described as religious. And right. that's the behavior that most people are looking at and going, this is worrying, this is worrying. So the, the, the idea about how do we replace that is actually a really hard problem because right. we've ruled about we've ruled out a bunch of things and we're not it's not clear what we're supposed to rule in to to give us that functionality that's another way of thinking about the meaning right well yeah that was going to be my that was going to be my next question is what takes the place of religion then what where do we start in constructing yes. something to to that can unify or can provide that story so one of the things i've tried to do is to try and answer the question the problem i've just posed the first part of it. And then, well, there's two parts. The first part is, well, what is that functionality? What is that deep functionality? And then secondly, how might we, uh, how might we re-engineer uh, that functionality for us? So the main idea uh, is this, that the very processes by which we are intelligent we can go into that at some point if you want, these processes of relevance, realization, and connectedness. These very processes that make us intelligent, they're highly dynamic, highly self-organizing. This is what is coming to the fore. Mm. Those very processes are also the very processes that make us perennially susceptible to self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior. Um, and when, the, when both of those reinforce each other, we can fall into despair in a profound way. And of course, a pervasive sense of nihilism and cynicism are another feature of our culture. And what you, 
these, these horses in us are powerful precisely because they are, they are hijacking the very processes that make us the make us adaptive cognitive agents. So we can't sort of just sort of shut off the processes. We have to somehow, we have to learn how to, with extremely sophisticated finesse in an, and in a correspondingly highly dynamic and highly self-organizing manner, we have to learn how to intervene and ameliorate the self-deception without damaging the self-organization that makes us so adaptive. So we need a very complex ecology of practices that, right, many practices that are self-organizing and dynamic and intervene in our psyche at, at different levels. And also, because of what I said earlier, are working not just individually, but collectively. Distributed cognition and collective intelligence are we're learning are very important. And so what you need is you need a place where people are committed to these ecologies of practices, both individually and collectively, that also gives you a proper arena that has been tailored for the practice, right? So the serious play of doing these ecologies individually and collectively and reinforcing and helping each other, and then situating that arena within a worldview that makes sense of these practices and legitimates them. This is basically, you know, the cultivation of wisdom, the reduction of foolishness, and the enhancement of that sense of connected meaning, meaning in life. What has typically done all of that in a highly coordinated fashion is religion. That's what religions have done. So until we do, we create something that has that dynamic depth and that transformative potential and that power to coordinate individual and collective intelligence we will not capture something that has the functionality of religion and thereby is capable of dealing with um, the serious threat to meaning and the pervasiveness of foolishness and bullshit in our lives individually and collectively. Right. And, and why is the distributed nature of that important? What is it about the kind of institutional nature that, it, that is important uh, that we can't get alone? You know, why can't we all just, I don't know, go and take mushrooms in the wood and listen to some music and then and then come back and have our own meaning in life? What, what's missing from that? Well, well, two related ideas. One is self-deception. Listen to the word self-deceptive. You do it to yourself. So being by yourself doesn't necessarily help. It can often make things worse. And so, you know, think about it. A big task of wisdom is to is to is to do the following. You know how wise you are when, you're, when, when your friend is doing something really foolish. They're doing that same pattern in the romantic failure or they're, they're getting frustrated about this thing and, and you can see it so clearly and you speak and you're helpful to your friend, right? And you have this sort of perspectival insight and you, right? And then you, you realize this, at least if you're honest with yourself, You'll sit down and you'll say, why can't I be that way with myself? Why can't I be that way with myself? And that is not an individual problem. That's a pervasive problem. Mm. And that's because we evolved to be cultural beings. There's no such thing as an individual culture. You didn't make the language you're using. You didn't create the technology you're using. You, right, you didn't even you know, create the educational structures that have given you most of the knowledge. You didn't make those books behind you, et cetera, et cetera. And most of our problem solving is not done individually. Think about all the people that are working to make our conversation possible. 
Right. Right. And, and all the expertise they ha- and how that has to all be coordinated. So most of our problem solving, we evolved to do it culturally, to do it together in distributed cognition. Look, and this is coming out experimentally. You take some very standard reasoning tasks, like the waste and selection task or things like this, and you'll get very, and you'll do it with, you know, first and second year psych students at university. These are bright kids. They're Sorry, what was that called? Psych- Sorry, the waste and collection. The waste and selection task, right? Did I won't go into the details. Do you want me to or? Well, just a little bit because I'm not, I'm not familiar. Okay. So basically you give people, you know, when, when you have a conditional reasoning, there are two legitimate forms, modus poland, modus ponens, modus tollens. There's the fallacy of affirming the consequent. There's the fallacy of denying the antecedent, right? No, it's the fallacy. Did I get them the right way? I can't remember. Uh, Let me see. The fallacy. Yeah, I think I did. Anyways, there's two valid and there's two invalid. And what you do is you basically give four cards to people and they have to turn over the cards and you give them some rule And the rule is basically like, what cards do you need to turn over to see if the rule is applied? And what they should do is turn over the cards that correspond to modus ponens and modus tollens and not one that is one of the fallacies. And overwhelmingly, 90% of people regularly get this wrong. It's a very simple task, very easy conditional reasoning, right? If P, then Q, P, then Q, right? Right. And all that sort of stuff. Okay. And this has been around since 66. And it doesn't suffer from the replication crisis. It robustly replicates that people fail this. And there's lots of things you can do to moderate that. But here's something that's really, really powerful. And we've actually known for a while. And Mercer and Spurbier make good good use of it in their book, The Enigma of Reasons. I have significant criticisms of that book, but I'll put it aside. But right. this this stuff, right? So you run it, have individuals run this problem. Only 10% get it right. Repeatedly, robustly. You take people, put them in a group of four, allow them to talk about the problem, the success rate goes to 80%, reliably, robustly. Because here's the idea. You know what the best correction on the self-centeredness of your cognition is? Me, being self-centered and pulling on you and you being self-centered and pulling on me. And when we are not adversarial, I have to defeat you which is what our politics yep. is degenerated into. But when we're what's called opponent processing, where you use me to correct you and I use you to correct me, then we both, and it's not additive, it's synergistic. We do way, it's not 10% and 10%, we get 20%, it's 80%, right? And, and this is just a one instance of increasing evidence, right? That distributed cognition and the power of collective intelligence is fundamental to our capacity for self-correction and self-transcendence right and for most of our important problem solving most of our important problem solving we're confronting things that morton calls hyper objects like global warming or Mm. poverty right they they don't they're not like this this remote they don't have a specific location and you can like right they're distributed and, and it takes distributed cognition Look at all the people that have to work together to track global warming or all the people that have to work together in the scientific community to try and track out what hap- what's happening, what has happened through evolution, right? Evolution is real, but you can't say, well, there it is. You know, it's over there in the corner of my room. There's evolution, right? So I, 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 I could say more, but I'm going to stop. I'm trying to convey there is just so much that is pointing to distributed cognition and collective intelligence. Right. This does not, by the way, 
This does not, by the way, it should not be taken to trespass on the idea that we are nevertheless, in we have individual responsibility. Individuals are valuable, right? They have moral worth. It doesn't trust. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about cognitive processing. Right. Yes. Uh, I, I was reminded as you were speaking about this idea that it, it, no, no one individual, if you, if you pick up a pencil or a pen and said, make me a pencil, you know, could you, yeah. none of us could do that. You know, we, we just yes. couldn't go and dig up the, the graphite and, you know, chop down the tree and put it all together to make a pencil or a pen. It's, it's. When I, when I was a little kid, I like uh, I, I was a strange kid. You can probably imagine that. But like I, I actually, I, 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 I did the project of making my own paper, right? And right. And it was really, really hard, and the product was not very good. And it, it, it very early on, it impressed me about wow, how much we really depend. Like, what what seems more trivial to us than a piece of paper? Try making a piece. Try making a piece well that you could right. use. Right. How is this concept of relevance realization related to making meaning? So, I mean, this is this is this is the core of, I guess, you call my cognitive scientific work, and this is my proposal as to what I think we're we're talking about and what we're measuring when we're measuring what's called general intelligence. General intelligence is some general capacity, domain general. What it it's expressed in the following way. You are a general problem solver. You can solve a wide variety of problems in a wide variety of domains. So you could, you could, I'm going to learn Romanian. I'm going to learn the history of Papua New Guinea. I'm going to learn how to swim. I'm going to learn how to climb. I'm going to learn how to uh, write, po like, just think of all the various, like, right. And, and here's what's amazing about you is, again, the capacity you have to do this and how you don't seem to be able to exhaust that capacity. Now you, you can't be omniscient or infinite. I'm not saying that, but it's like, if you want to, you know, learn how to play the flute, you could get quite wet, good at it. Now, what's interesting is this capacity for general intelligence. When we measure it, it's predictive of all of these things, it, you know, all else being equal. If, if this person has a higher, you know, IQ than that person, they'll learn the flute faster and better. Right, or they'll learn Romanian faster or better, or they'll learn how to write poetry faster or better. Am I saying that's the only factor? No. In fact, I think Stanovich is right that rationality ultimately matters more than intelligence, but intelligence is a necessary condition of rationality. Now, how, what's the best explanation for that capacity to be a general problem solver? And this is the capacity we still can't give to artificial intelligence. That's why a lot of people are now talking about what they call the AGI project artificial general intelligence and th because they're real this is something i've been arguing for a long time <laughs> that this is the central problem of intelligence and i feel i, I guess i think rightfully vindicated that the, the the realization that we need to create agi is actually the crucial problem okay so here's my proposal and it's based on a lot of other people's work and it's based on a lot of work with, with other people, Tim Lilliclap, Blake Richards, Leo Ferraro, Gary Helvenesian, Anna Rydell, Brett Anderson, Mark Miller. Like, there's a number of, just a, a huge number of people. And publications are, 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 are we just, I published one last year. There's another one that I think is going to get published this year. This is, so this is at the beginning and all through my career. Okay, so enough about what it is I'm trying to explain. Let's be more specific. Here's my proposal as to what I think intelligence the core of intelligence is. And it's based on an idea that sort of goes back to James, William James, about 
how central attention is. And you'll see why in a second. So here's a problem that you face. Here's a general problem you face, meaning you face it when you try to solve almost any problem. The amount of information you can consider as potentially relevant to your problem is astronomically vast. So the amount of information just in my room I can pay attention mm. to, it like I could focus on that point on the microphone, or I, I might want to notice, focus on the, the red second hand of my watch. I might want to know, is there any connection between the red dot on my mic and the red hand on my watch? And then you, as soon as you start doing that, you realize, oh my gosh, I could, exactly. And so here's what you can't do. You can't do what I just did. You can't, you can't go through and check all the possible patterns, right? All the possible information. It's astronomically vast, but it gets worse. You'll say, well, what I do is I check my memory. Right, you do. Here's the problem. How much do you think you have in your memory? Have you ever exhausted it? Can you, could you write it down, all of it? Did you ever meet anybody who said, you know, I'm full. I can't, I can't take in, in any more memory. Now think of all the information you have and think more importantly of this, of all the ways you could connect that information. Because almost always when you draw on your memory, you don't just draw a full-blown solution. You have to draw from many different parts and draw them together. Combinatorially vast. Third thing. Well, what I'll do is I'll, you know, I just got to come up with, you know, well, trial and error. I'll just do a sequence of actions. But which sequence of actions? The number of possible sequences of actions. Like I could move this finger and then this finger. I could move them together. I could move this one and then this. Uh, oh my gosh. Right. Well, right. Right. And so the number of possible sequences of behavior is combinatorially vast. Well, I'll ask other people, oh, how are you going to talk to them? What noises are you going to make and what gestures you're going to make? Well, I'm going to make the ones that are meaningful to them. Well, how did you get those? Well, I learned how to talk. Well, you know what you learned how to talk? You learned somehow uh, to exclude most of the information, right? But also pick up on all of the, the information. Well, what do I mean by that? As soon as I say anything to you, I have to be conveying much more than I'm saying. So if I say to you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, so do you, and oh, that's Jamie, understand mm -hmm. I, okay, that's John. Understand, understand, this is a weird metaphor. What does that mean? What, what, what I'm saying, well, he means not just what the words that are coming, but it also means everything that he's thinking. Is it everything he's thinking? No, I don't wanna know everything. Oh my God, <sighs> you see the problem? Yeah. So the point is, no matter, all of these things are combinatorially explosive. The amount of information you you could check, because it's logically possible that it's relevant, mm. is astronomical. And then here's what you're doing right now, Jamie. You're zeroing in on the relevant information. You're not checking all of that. And somehow you're going, zoop. you're getting the right stuff out of memory. You're paying attention to the right stuff. Right? You're drawing the right inferences, drawing the right implications, figuring out the correct sequence of behavior, and you're tailoring it so it's all very coordinated together. And here's what people say when I say this. And they'll say, but that's all obvious. Yes, that's right. Your brain performs this miracle, and the name of the miracle, and this is what sounds so strange to you, is obviousness. Your brain takes right, this, right, and out of all of that, it makes obvious 
what you should do. It makes salient and immediately relevant to you what right. you should do. That's what we can't give to a machine. And it does it in such a way that m most of the time, what has been made obvious to you helps you to solve the problem you need. Okay. And then how does that relate to this idea of making meaning? Good. Well, I just wanted to give a chance in case you had any questions about that proposal. Okay. So notice fair. what notice. So this will now allow me to go back and explain two things, right? One is self-deception and therefore wisdom. And the other is connection, meaningfulness. And you'll see why they're bound together. What your brain does, and, and this almost sounds like a Zen Cohen, in order to be intelligent is it, it ignores most of the available information in the environment, in the memory, and right in, 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 the, in the considerations of what to do, in the considerations of how to communicate. It ignores most of the information. Now think about that for just a moment, that your intelligence is dependent on a very complex and sophisticated form of ignorance. So sometimes the information we're ignoring as irrelevant turns out to be the relevant information. So let me give you a, a very obvious example. And thankfully, because of cell phones, this is now declining in the world, but still, it's still apparent. So people would regularly do this, some people. They would go into a situation in which they were knew, they knew <clears throat> there was flammable gas dispersed and it was dark. And they would light a match because they wanted the light. And that's all that's relevant. Forgetting something that's usually irrelevant about a match, which is its capacity to ignite chemical reactions, and they would blow themselves up. Right? Right. So the vast majority of times when you strike a match, right, that's not a relevant thing to consider. But in that situation, it was. Right? Let, let me give you another one. Right? Right. So, <clears throat> you know, so what's the tree that grows from an acorn? An oak. Oh, and what is it when you rubbed your hand like this? Oh, that's a, a, a stroke. And what's the gray stuff that comes from out of a fire? A uh, smoke. And what do you call the white of an egg? Oh, a yolk. No, you don't. You call it the white of an egg. But people hear the pattern and they think the oak sound is relevant. Mm -hmm. And then they ignore everything else that's even being said to them. And they just zero in on it. So these are trivial examples. Now you've also know you've also had more profound and and and, and pay attention to this, mm -hmm. right? Where you you've like you've done this. You had the aha experience. You realized, oh no, I've been thinking about this all in totally the wrong way. I've been framing this the wrong way. Right? She's not being aggressive. She's afraid. I've just been misunderstanding this completely. I've been misframing this. You've had those moments, right? Right. Those yes. are aha moments when you realize you were treating the wrong information as relevant and you were framing it the wrong way. That's an insight experience. And notice what happens in that insight experience. You feel suddenly really connected to the situation. It seems way more meaningful to you. People even, and it seems more super salient. It's almost like there's a little bit, little piece of flow in that. And it's like, whoa, right? And we, a light goes on and we, oh, the eyes, right? Right. Okay, so when you, what's, what the insight experience is showing you is your relevance realization process is prone to self-deception 
And so it celebrates self-correction. And what is being celebrated is an increased connection to the situation, the problem at hand. So this meaning is how relevance realization fits you, connects you to the situation. But that meaning machinery is always prey to self-deceptive, self-destructive spirals. This is where we get anxiety and depression spirals, and we get caught up in echo chambers, and and people spiral into conspiracy theories and all kinds of stuff like this, right? And so what we need is we need sets of practices, ecologies of practices, that can ameliorate that self-deception without destroying the needed, the adaptive self-correction of, you can't destroy relevance realization, that would be a disaster. Right. So you have to somehow ameliorate the self-deception and enhance the insight and enhance the connectedness. I I put it to you, that's very good description of being wise, what to be wise is. And here's another way of understanding the meaning crisis. You can understand it as wisdom famine. I will ask my students, where do you go for information? Well, the internet, social media. Where do you go for knowledge? A little bit slower, I guess, science, the university. Where do you go for wisdom? Silence. That's another way of seeing the meaning crisis. Wisdom is not an option. We have never needed it more than now because of the pollution of right the information, the, the vast amount of often polluted information we're trying to sift through. And then the exigent demands on us by the meta crisis, right? And the meaning crisis is we need wisdom now more than ever and we are we are experiencing uh, it's famine more than ever. Right. Well, you know the name of this podcast, one percent wiser. Hopefully, uh, yes, yeah, yeah, <laughs> one, yes, one percent of the of of the of the solution, maybe no, or less. I'm sure. But I'd love to take a, a bit of a, a left turn then and start to talk about some of the tools and some of yeah. the some of the the things we can do to cultivate that in our lives. And one thing I I thought might be interesting to just stimulate some thoughts for you again was I recently read a book which I'm hoping you've heard of called Recapture the Rapture. By Jamie Jamie Wheel, Wheel. I believe. yes, right. I know Jamie. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, yeah. uh, and so uh, you know he had a number of you know very practical kind of you know based in lots of Silicon Valley, and I mean that positively, kind of the yeah. human centered design, you know, and it was about breathing and about substances, about music and sexuality, and these were very sort of concrete and sort of prescriptive, I suppose, in, in there. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to hear how you think about applying some of these ideas and maybe you can either, you know, you can talk about those from the book or how you would approach putting this together in your own life. How do you bring these together to create meaning in your life or, or, you know, or take it from, from the book, whichever, whichever you think would be a better starting point for you. So, so I don't know the specific book. I know Jamie's work and I I know about uh, stealing fire, but so Here's the issue that I have with some of these books. I want to be very careful because I think Jamie's doing good work, and I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to sort of rain on that. But so I'll, I'll speak more broadly. More. Yeah, you could also speak, as I said, to practices or or how yeah, you bring it yeah. together in your life. I guess. Well, but here's one consideration. One consideration I have is that a lot of these recommendations are not based on a deeper uh, sort of cognitive scientific understanding. Right. They're what I call aspirin technology. Well, we've taken aspirin and when we do, our headache goes away. And so we take aspirin when we have headaches and it goes away. And it's like, why does that happen? Right. And what right. is like, all right. And, and, and this has consequences. So you think of side effects 
of aspirin if you don't understand the full causation, right? And in a similar way, we have to pay attention to the side effects of various practices and processes, and we have to pay attention to the, 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 the side effect of our adaptivity, which is our capacity for self-deception. I think, I think wisdom is the principal thing we should be talking about, which is, again, the capacity to overcome self-deception and enhance connectedness. Enhancing connectedness also falls prey to this. It's, this is called the frame problem, but I'll just call it the side effect problem. Every pra- There's no panacea practice. Every practice has, this is called the no free lunch theorem. I won't go into the details. Every practice has a domain in which it improves your behavior, but it also has a domain in which it actually degrades your behavior and makes it worse, right? Let me give you, let me give you two hmm. clear examples. Well, you, you, John, you talked about insight. What's a thing that makes insight happen more? Mindfulness. Mindfulness practices enhance insight. Well, what do they do? They basically shut off your inferential processing and they enhance that self-organizing, self-correcting capacity. And so you get the leap of insight. You go, well, wow, that's great. I should just, I should just maximize my brain's capacity for cognitive leaping. Well, do you want to do that? Because the problem is the cognitive leaping is also what happened when I gave you all the oak sounding words and you leapt to the conclusion. Or if I say, you know, here's a pond and it has lily pads on it. There's one lily pad. And then every day the, the pond doubles in lily pads. On what day was the pond half covered? And people will say the 10th day. No, it's day 19. Day 19 is it's half covered. And then on the 20th day, right? And so the cognitive leaping that is so wonderful in it, when you like it, you call it insight. And when you don't like it, you call it leaping to a conclusion, which is often a disaster. And what we do is what I call aspect disguise. We don't realize that those are two different aspects of the same process. You get this in therapy, right? People will come in and they'll say, I know what my problem is, doc. I'm, I'm really stubborn. I'm really stubborn. I just, I just, everybody's complaining. I'm so stubborn. I, I, I just won't give up on things. And then you, oh, oh, and then you talk about other things and you get them away. And then just, you'll, you, uh, like, uh, unexpectedly, you'll say, tell me something uh, without thinking. So tell me something you really like about yourself. And, you'll, and they'll say, oh, I really persevere. I really keep going no matter what. And they don't realize that perseverance and stubbornness are two different aspects of the same thing. So we do this aspect disguise and then we think, we can just maximize one thing because we don't see its double, right? So what do you need if you're doing a lot of mindfulness? You need the opponent process, not the adversary. Remember, we, we talked about opponent processing. Mm. You need what's called active open-mindedness. It does the exact opposite. It shuts off the insight machinery in order to take care of careful inferential argumentation. So do you see how they're, 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 they're the reverse of each other? Mm-hmm. Mindfulness shuts off inference to help insight and active open-mindedness dabs down the insight machinery so you can more carefully come to inferential conclusions. So what should you really do? You should have the two practices being trained together and acting as checks and balances on each other. This is what I mean by an ecology of practices. You have a whole configuration, a dynamic configuration of practices that act as comprehensive checks and balances on each other and then can comprehensively deal with the dynamics of your self-deceptive, self-destructive behavior and the powerful dynamics of relevance realization that gives you the connectedness of meaning. So the 
what we need, I, I, I don't think there's a, a set of practices. Mm. I think there are what we should look for are designed features, uh, designed features for ecology. We should set up opponent processing. We should set up features that scaffold each other pedagogically. We should set up practices that can be layered on top of each other and, and, and support each other in processing. We should set up processes that help uh, integrate the different kinds of knowing, the propositional and the non-propositional kinds of knowing. We should set up practices that really help us transfer the training situation to unexpected life situations. We should look for design features within ecologies of practices rather than recommending feature lists, mm. recipes of practice. Got it. And so how does that come together in your life? <laughs> how does that come together <laughs> in my life? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm always practicing and doing experiment, doing participant experimentation constantly. Every morning I do a set of practices, you know, there's, and there, there's all these opponent process. There's meditative practices that take my attention inward, contemplative practices that take it outward. There's seated practices, there's moving practices, there's reading practices, Lexio Divina, there's, right, there's an ecology, right. right? There's an ecology. And I do reflective practices. I do practices that train my argumentation skill. I do all of this. And then I, I, and then I also, right, with other people, I'll collective practices like philosophical fellowship, dialectic into dialogos. And then I, I try to configure them together. And Chris, Master Pietro, and Guy Senstock and I are like putting together like a pedagogical program that takes people through a sequences right. of practices so they can get into di a dialectic into dialogos. This is how this translates into my life. And then what I do is I'm talking to people who are have put it are putting in time, talent, their finances, their lives, like Rafe Kelly, right? Putting together these ecologies of practices. Bonita Roy, Zach Stein, and I talk to them and, 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 you know, we try to help get a shared understanding. And beyond that, we're trying to create a community of communities so that we can do something analogous to what like religion, what, what religion used to do for people. That's how this translates into my life. That's now, one, one thing that is, that is, that is the, the, the commitment on my practice and my aspiration. I'm not saying I'm enlightened. I'm not saying I'm a sage. I'm not saying anything ridiculous like that. But I, one of my practices is to internalize the sage. Right. Well, I, I have a symphony of sages. The most important to me is Socrates. I'm constantly trying to internalize Socrates. Why is Socrates the most important? So for me, Socrates puts, Socrates lives, he exemplifies many of the features that I'm talking about here in a powerful way. So Socrates is very rational, but he's also very mystical. Socrates is very much into know thyself, but he, he binds that to helping, uh, he's the midwife helping other people to give birth to themselves. He practices dialectic into dialogos, right? He, he reflects upon the deep connections between wisdom, virtue, and meaning. And he does it in a way that is historically clearly, it has historical provenance for somebody like myself who grew up in whatever this is supposed to mean now, the West, right? right? The sort of the post-European, post-Christian world. 
Other sages are important to me. Siddhartha Gautama, Spinoza is very important to me. But for me, Socrates epitomizes all of those. And, and, then, and also just the, the artistic masterpieces of the Platonic dialogues. Right. I think I think the Symposium and the Republic are some of the best works of literature that have ever been written. And final, and this is idiosyncratic, when, when, I, when I left the fundamentalist Christian upbringing and moved into my own personal version of the meaning crisis, the figure that I encountered that turned me away from sort of a dark nihilism was... Right. Well, I mean, I, I would love to, to go more into that, John, but we're coming to the end of our time here. So so we could we could go all day and talk, go down that rabbit hole. I'm sure that would be fantastic. But I really want to thank you for taking this whirlwind tour through your work. And I, I'd like to just finish with one brief question. I think you may have touched on it then. I'd love to hear what, if anything, you would recommend to somebody who... Uh, maybe is not as familiar with your work, but if there are sort of books or resources that you would gift gift to somebody who came to you and said, "Look, I'm really struggling with 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 meaning. You know, maybe I have addiction problems, maybe I have family problems. Yes. Is there somewhere where they where you would say, "Hey, maybe start here." And uh, of course, your your series on the meaning crisis is, is one. But I'm thinking, you know, outside of your your work, is there something that you would start yeah. as a kind of try try to to help people? Well, I, I would I would point beyond my series to begin with. I would point to what Sevilla King calls this corner, or sometimes this little corner of the of the internet, in which she's talking about like the work that I do, the work that Paul Vanderclay does, the work that Jonathan Pajot does, the work that Sevilla King does, a, a, a whole bunch of people, you, you know, Rebel Wisdom, and also the work that Guy Sandstock is doing, and and, it, and it's growing. Uh, so first of right. all, uh, uh, follow that out. Follow, find a place, a place that is well vetted. For that is taking up an ecology of practices that is is at least approximately designed the way I've talked about it to you, and 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 make sure it's very clear that the ecology is the center of the place and not the leader or owner of the school or the place, and and then also start doing some practices. I recommend starting with a meditative practice, a contemplative practice. I have an online course, meditating with John Verveke, cultivating wisdom with John Verveke. I would recommend getting two books, if which is what is ancient philosophy and then the wisdom of Hypatia, and read them together. But also do that if you want that online meditation course. Take up a martial art practice that has a mindfulness component to it, uh, and find a way in which you can do a dialogical practice like philosophical contemplation. Sorry, philosophical fellowship or Randall House philosophical contemplation or a dialectic into dialogos, or, or many of the other dialogical practices that are emerging, insight, dialogue, inquiry, etc. Take a look at Edwin Reusch's empathy circling practice. There's a lot of resources there. The thing that you have to do is look for this the way you would look for a friend. Don't just leap into the first thing that starts to give you some satisfaction. You're going to be my friend. Think about how weird that would be or creepy. Or you're going to be the only friend I need to have. That's also sort of creepy and weird. So try and frame it. And this is a Buddhist metaphor. And it's also a Socratic metaphor. You're befriending yourself. Are you going to a place with the attitude of the same attitude you would as finding a friend? And also, is that a place that helps you befriend yourself better? 
Oh, thank you. Those are some wonderful, wonderful places to start. And you mentioned Tai Chi. I really wanted to ask you about that. Uh, I do, I do jujitsu myself, and I'd love to talk about your practice. But maybe we can save that for a part two. In the meantime, yes. I'd love to just, you know, thank you also for the wonderful gift to the world of the of the series. I'm currently working my way through the Meaning Crisis series of lectures on YouTube. It really is an incredible gift to the world. So, and and to thank you as well for the gift of your time this morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to be in conversation with me and to, to take the time out of your day. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Jamie. It's been a great pleasure. And if you if you were not just being polite and meant that you'd like me to come back, I, I would be happy to come back and, and, and talk some more. Uh, I would be honored. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.